Information about the world of running, inspiration to fuel passion and excellence, and ideas for making connections and finding community. You're listening to A to Z Running. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the A to Z Running Podcast, where we help runners thrive. I'm Andy. And I am Zach. This week on the A to Z Running Podcast, we're continuing our conversation about how to get the most out of running, this time talking about the physiology of running and understanding the science of running better. And for this conversation, we have Todd Buckingham, PhD and national champion in the duathlon. Yeah, and three things that you're going to want to think about because this is a loaded conversation, so I want to help you focus your attention. First, what adaptations indicate improving fitness? Second, when do those adaptations occur? And third, how to most easily and effectively achieve those adaptations, a.k.a. build fitness. Mm -hmm. So by the way, before you do anything else, because you don't want to miss any of this great content coming at you, you need to go to a to z running.com, click the word follow, and then head over to YouTube and all the other places where you consume things like what we're doing and subscribe. Then you don't have to do the tedious work of finding us. We will find you. Very good. Well, we love all the comments and engagement. We appreciate all of you who have followed along with the A to Z Running Podcast and with us on social media. We've gotten to know so many of you through that platform. And there's a lot of opinions on our recent posts, and we love to hear that too. And it's talking about the conversation that we had about the watch and getting rid of the watch. And I think it stirred the pot just a little bit. Well, we assumed that it would. Because Zach was pretty strong about his opinion of that data coming through in informing us about how to best run a workout. I was under the impression that smart people agree with me. Oh, goodness. So I guess we'll find out for sure because I'm not on social media. So Andy has to relay to me anything that happens there. So if you haven't heard that episode and what is stirring up all of this talk please go check it out. It is a couple episodes ago. What was it called, Zach? Sure. And what were the comments? (laughs) So Kate was saying that she loves the data, but she hates the watch. And Mm. we appreciate that because that's actually, in, in reading all the comments, everyone's pretty much in agreement. Everybody really wants to have the watch because they want to be able to see the data and be able to evaluate it. And that is informative. But during an actual run, to be completely tied to it is not as helpful as you would think. Well, apparently there are some out there who would also like to pick fights with me about my opinions. <laughs> uh, remember my earlier comment about smart people, Joe. And we don't rise to the bait of debating on social media because I'm quite confident that all social media debates are at the core of societal unrest. Yeah. So I'm not going to rise to that bait, no, and Joe. He was just however, he what was I kidding. am going to do is say maybe this would be a good episode in the future so we can actually have the discussion ah. and talk about the pros and cons of yes. the watch. Because you both actually agree. It was just kind of a fun thing. Was it? Uh-huh. So 
we do have a product to talk about today, Zach. Oh, yeah. Speaking of things that are not up for debate, we <laughs> all like the benefits of recovery and things like massage that can help influence that recovery. So last week, we had Lewis introduce you to Roll Recovery and the R8 product, among a few others. So this week, we're going to continue that conversation and talking specifically about uh, things like the R8, Roll Recovery's products and tools, um, and how they help us the athletes who don't necessarily have like professional status in the sport still have access to some of the benefits that the professionals do like those massages that they get, you know, weekly, daily, whenever they want them. Um, but we can't. So how can we achieve the benefits of those things without uh, access? Definitely. So here's Lewis to talk about that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that might've been a game changer for them? Yeah. So it honestly, that's exactly what you just described is, is dead on true. Like I think people envision this huge gap um, just when it comes to ability between pros and then non-pros, but there's intermediates and there's, there's people who, even though they might not be financially rewarded for their efforts are still putting in a ton of training um, and their bodies suffer the consequences. Very few people can get through a year of running without any injuries. It's just, it's almost impossible. But the same number of people um, or that, that, you know, are completely injury free and not people who have failed to get them to massages. Um, so it just is, essentially allows you to have like a deep tissue massage at home. That's the whole premise. So once he kind of fine tuned the, the, design side of this product he started distributing it out got awesome feedback um adriana still uses it you know 11 years later or nine years later i'm sorry um i i see her using it all the time and she's still training harder than ever so it i mean that right there is testament she doesn't now no one's no one's looking at her like so do you use it you know she uses it because she genuinely needs it um but that is kind of what started it all. From there, we branched out and started making a couple other products that I'll end up talking to you guys about too. Well, you can check out all their products with Roll Recovery, including the new custom R8 Build Your Own at RollRecovery.com. Com, but be sure to head to YouTube and subscribe to our channel A to Z Running because we're going to publish the entire conversation with Lewis about the benefits of deep tissue massage and the benefits of the roll recovery products and achieving that. And that's going to be available soon and you don't want to miss it. So subscribe on YouTube. First up in the world of running this week, we wanted to mention the European Team Championships, which happened on Saturday and Sunday, May 29th and 30th in, let me try to say this, Chorzow, Poland. And so in Poland, it just so happened that the Polish defended their team title. Now this is two straight team titles on home turf this time and uh, did so with a, with a solid victory over Italy in second and Britain in third. And the way they do this is very different than what we see in, in some of like the more common championships on this side of the pond where we really don't do that team championship dynamic the same way. But in Europe, because there are so many countries, there are so many teams as well. And so it, it tends to be a little bit bigger deal. Uh, but a couple of just quick notes because there were a lot of individual wins across the board, but it was not a terribly competitive meet. They, they didn't have 
the big headliners in a lot of the events, and the times weren't great. The weather wasn't stellar, so it was a little bit slower and such. But that said, um, I mentioned Poland defended their title. There were also in the men's 5K a few new Olympic standards, some 13 teens times and uh, from that's a few fast. different countries, and that's, yeah. that's quick times. So always nice to see some Olympic standards hit the boards, yeah. especially for some new ones for some countries because that means they're likely going to be in the games for sure, being only a few from each country that go. Yeah. And then jumping across the pond here Saturday, May 29th in Boston, USA was the Platinum PT Qualifier. This event put on with the Boston Track Club predominantly, um, and, and they performed well, I should say, too. That's the Reebok Boston Track Club. Um, but uh, it also was bad weather. And so, you know, you get the sting of you get you get some good races set up, but then the weather doesn't cooperate. And so the right. times aren't quite what they're hoping for. And being an event oriented around qualifying, it was frustrating for some of the athletes. And you heard that in some of the post-race interviews where they just were a little bit disappointed that uh, the weather didn't cooperate and give them the fast times they wanted. A uh-huh. um, couple things to note, though. One new Olympic standard in the women's 5K, and this would have been uh, from Great Britain, so this is not an American athlete, but Amy, Amy Eloise Markovich, and who runs with the Reebok Boston Track Club, as it were, um, did run a new Olympic qualifier in the 5K, which she had not previously run. So that was solid. Mm-hmm. Aside from that, some good races, um, some interesting question marks for some American athletes like Molly Huddle and Ben True, who are big names but haven't quite been performing this year, so we're not quite sure if we'll see them at the trials or not, but we'll continue watching for them. Absolutely. Well, in Portland, there was a big event, the Portland Track Meet. Track Festival is what they call it, right? Very festive. It was fun to watch. Zach and I were able to watch that online. We had it streaming. And so we were able to watch some previous podcast guests who did very well. Sam Chalunga in the 5K, he improved his time. He's already qualified for the trials. So we're excited to see him there with his trending up. And Kendra Chambers stamped her ticket in the 800 for the Olympic trials. And Emily Oren in the 3K steeplechase also hit the Olympic trials qualification. So we're excited for those athletes specifically because we've had them on the podcast. And if you don't know them and haven't listened to those episodes before, I will link to their podcast episodes at a to z running.com. Well, the highlight event of the meet, at least in our opinion, was the men's 1500 meter run specifically highlighted not because of the winner, although Craig Engels did perform well and we'll get to that in a moment. And his mustache still looks good. But not the mullet. And <laughs> Craig Ingles, what a guy. So much fun to watch. But before we get to Craig, let's talk just a moment about the fifth place finisher in the race, 18-year-old Hobbs Kessler of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Michigan. Let me give you the time. 334.36, which may not mean a lot to all of you. However, it should mean a lot in the context of the fact that the previous high school record in the 1500 held by Alan Webb was a solid four seconds slower. Hobbs Kessler just bested the high school 1500 meter record by four seconds. Not only a 20 year old record, he also ran an Olympic qualifying time, the 16th fastest in the world this year as well. And bettered Jim Ryan, the legendary Legendary, Jim Ryan's what is it, the U-20 record from 1966, I believe, is when that record was set. It's like a 75-year-old record. That's incredible. That's incredible. Oh, yeah. and by the way, 
This high school record in the 1500 is now faster than the NCAA collegiate record <laughs> in the 1500 as well, which was just set it recently. It have something to chase, though, it right? It is incredible. Yeah. So he's on cloud nine, and uh, you know he's got his high school state meet coming up here soon, and everything's just kind of a chuckle at this point when you talk about him competing against high schoolers because it's like he he's one of the world's best Yeah. across all levels. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's so right. fun. It is. So Craig Engels did win the race, by the way, in, in a PR time of 3.33.6. And that's a that's a solid performance. It put him up on the world leading list. Uh, not uh, quite with the world leaders because there were some crazy fast times over in the Doha Diamond League race, which we'll get to in a moment. But uh, definitely a solid win for Craig. He's looking fast when mm-hmm. it counts. And yeah. so he's going to be a real threat at the Olympic trials. And a side note, six men, including Craig and Hobbs, ran the Olympic standard of 335 in this one race. Mm-hmm. That's fast. Well, I had mentioned that Emily Oren got the Olympic trial standard at this event. In the women's steeplechase, there were actually four who went under the Olympic standard. Mm-hmm. And there was a very strong showing from Courtney Frerichs of Barman Track Club. And we would expect that of her because, well, she is the U.S. record holder in the event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so she looked great. And when you're this late in the season, and she hadn't been doing a lot of racing, but uh, we, you know, know, you know, she's in good shape because of things she's been doing recently. But um, she looked really strong. Definitely the one to beat at the U.S. Trials. Of course, Leah Falland will be in that mix trying Mm -hmm. to beat Courtney. Yeah. Um, And it'll be very exciting race. But uh, it's gonna look it's gonna look tough to beat her among others. So one uh, one quick small thing here, because I did want to mention, in the men's 10,000 meter, which was not a terribly fast race, uh, Galen Rupp was in the run. He's qualified in the marathon, as you know, and the 10K is kind of like a priming experience for him as he's getting ready for the Olympics. Um, and he has even said that he may still run the 10K in the Olympic trials. Um, it, there's a possibility he'll do that, but he's not intending to do it in the Olympics, regardless of what happens there. It's, it's all kind of interesting. I do want to remind everyone that he is the U.S. record holder in yeah. the 10K or in the 10,000 meters on the track. So, yeah. I mean, he, it's not like shrugging like I mean, oh galen on the track he's you not know? just the U- the u.s record holder he's got like nine or ten u.s titles in the 10k yeah. <laughs> so yeah it's it, when he shows up on the race in a 10k even right now when he's really focused on the marathon it's always something to watch well he did not perform as as you would necessarily guess of galen rupp uh, next to some of these japanese guys that showed up big and this is where i wanted to make the comment so it's Suguru osako of japan who really highlighted this race and he trains by the way in portland uh, i think it's in portland but he trains in oregon with one of the nike teams there and um ran the the first heat there were two heats of the men's 10k ran the first heat won the race in a crazy finish like just so fast so strong it was quite incredible we really looked like galen rupp was going to try to take the thing away and then he couldn't and it was something to see um but uh, the time was not terribly fast by itself 2756 i believe which is an olympic trials qualifier in the u.s but not an olympic standard um that aside minutes later Suguru Osako lined up again, and I literally mean minutes later, and ran the second heat of the 10K also, which is a very strange thing to do. It's a workout. It doesn't happen often, but when you got a guy who's, well, you know, this good, and he runs the first 10K and wins it, and then runs the second one and almost wins that too. He was second. He got out kicked by someone else, um, and it was not as fast of a race. It was about a minute slower, so that helped it feel better, I'm guessing, but I don't know how you can feel 
good after running that hard in a 10K and then just going right back yeah. to the line. But he did. Yeah. And the real question is, why? <laughs> we don't necessarily have a clear answer for you, but there's there's some interesting interviews with people who do out there. So all that said, the Portland Track Festival was a really exciting meet. Lots of great performances, lots of great runners. But there was another super high-level meet going on relatively simultaneously in Qatar. Doha, Qatar. Mm-hmm. So on Friday, the 28th of May in Qatar, this would be then a Diamond League meet. It's the second installment of the Diamond League this year. And we're going to see a lot of great performances across the summer through these Diamond Leagues. But this one in particular did not disappoint. Lots of new mm-hmm. entries into the world leader lists across several events. A few things to note in particular were some new world leading performances. First in the men's 800 was Wycliffe Kinyamal of Kenya in 143.91. That's okay. quick. Yeah. But it's still not, you know, we're going to see things like 142s and such from, from the world's best when they're really in their form. So we're just seeing that 800 get a little quicker, yeah. a little quicker. Yeah. And that's good. In the men's 1500, Timothy Chariot, also of Kenya, ran 330 in the 1500, which is fast. That is that, fast. Wow. Yeah. That doesn't happen often, by the way, folks, in a given year. There aren't that many people out there that can run 330 or under. Um, and the ones who can don't do it every year either. So, now, what, what events does Timothy Chariot Pretty run? much just the 1500. Okay. He is a miler specialist. Okay. And he will run some other shorter things and some other longer things. He's like, like a 3K before, too. Yes. Okay. But definitely a miler specialist. Okay. And then in the women's 3,000 meter steeple, another world leading time. This one by Nora Tanui of Kenya in nine flat. Point oh. .6. <laughs> All right. Very fast. Speaking of the women's steeple. Yeah, that was a hot event. <laughs> Indeed. So there were seven times faster than the previous world lead. Okay. So 10 <laughs> new in the top 20. Yep. And there were a couple of national records, Zach. What were they? So two national records, one for Ethiopia by Makiti's Ababi Demiwiz, Demiwaz, sorry. And she ran 902.52, which that's fast. Now, the, the world record in the women's steeple is like 844. Really? Yes. Um, but only Kenyans pretty much have run like under nine minutes in the okay. women's steeple. And it's really an interesting thing. It's literally just a bunch of Kenyans. And then there's a couple uh, from older, like Chinese and Eastern European times that are suspect as to whether they were drug cheating back when it wasn't tested as much. Anyway, aside from that point. Um, so for Ethiopia's national record to be 16, 18 seconds slower than the world record is really an interesting thing. Uh, but there was also another Fast. national record for Slovakia. And this was no. Marusa Mismas Zrmsek. If I said that right, and she ran nine sixteen point eight, which is fast, still yeah. faster than the previous world best this year too. We love celebrating those national records. Very exciting. Very exciting. And so we haven't been seeing a lot of national records at some of these meets like this, um, but I expect we're going to be seeing more and more of this as the Diamond League progresses as well. Now, a couple other general notes that we want to just kind of mention. Over the course of the running, whether it's meets that we just mentioned there or some other things that were happening, because there was a lot going on. Yeah. Women's steeplechase, we mentioned that there were a lot of new entries into the world leading. There were actually 14 new entries for the whole weekend and to the top 20 list. Okay. So 10 of those were in Doha. Four of them were in Portland. So between those two meets, 
14 new entries. Wow. And the men's 1500 also saw something similar, the top 20 list blowing up with 12 new entries, and they were split between Doha and Portland again. So you can see, you know, there where there were fast times, there were lots of fast times mm-hmm. this weekend. It's kind of the way it went. So five new entries from Doha, seven from Portland, including I mentioned Hobbs Kessler, the 18-year-old who ran the 16th fastest time in the world this year. Oh, and the thing moved. She ran her regionals quarterfinal for the 400 in a new NCAA record what? of 49.68. She broke the 50-second <laughs> barrier, and that's the fastest USA U-20 as well, wow. and fourth in the world this year. So the I question— think, no, What aren't you going to do? It, oh, like, wow. Nice. I, I didn't mean to rhyme there, but I, I'm just <laughs> like every time she runs an event, she seems to do well in it. Yeah, and that's a fact. So the big question mark is, what's she actually going to do at the yeah. trials? She has said to people that she's focusing on the 800. Um, however, just as likely that she has said to other people she's focusing on the 400, something maybe fascinating. Both. Yeah, maybe both. Something fascinating here is she is only qualified individually in the 400 for the NCAA championships. Mm. So based out of the regionals, she only qualified in the 400, which is interesting. I don't know if it was on purpose maybe or not. Maybe she's sharpening. Yes. And so as a fact, you know, it looks like if she's running the 400 at NCAAs next weekend, then there's a good chance she's doing that because she wants to focus on the 800, Mm. which is a little bit more of a taxing event with the rounds and such. Uh, And the U.S. trials are only two weeks later. So I could see that strategy. I'm very exciting to watch her. <laughs> so that's one to watch. Yes. That said, the NCAA regionals, which we really didn't cover in much detail right now, um, largely because the championships are next weekend, and we're going to cover that in more detail. Yes. Taylor Franco. <laughs> yes. Among many uh, great performers to watch. We've talked about Cole Hawker, who did that crazy double indoors for the win in the, the mile is it a mile? Yes, yeah, in the mile 3K indoors, and he qualified in both the 1500 and 5K outdoors, which is not easy to do. These regionals are tough. Mm-hmm. And if you recall, the NCAA qualification thing is not about running a time; it's about your performance at the regionals meet. And they only take somewhere around 24 athletes in wow. an event, 12 from each region. So that means you really gotta show your stuff in these regionals races. And so he did, and and he's going to be there on the double for the championships next weekend. On the double. So what we're going to do here is we're just going to put a link to the the performance list for the championships so you can see who all qualified for the championships, and then uh, we'll cover that in more depth and detail next week. Oh, by the way, just a quick reminder. <laughs> if you look at that link, the performance list link, you'll look at it and you'll think, oh, I thought these people were like running faster times than this. Um, and they are, but they only show for the performance lists. The seed time is from their regionals run. Oh, got so it. they may, and almost all of them have run faster times earlier in the season, but gotcha. it only shows the regionals performance. Good to know. Well, so much to talk about and even more coming next week. So stay tuned for that. Let's go ahead and move on to our main topic. Well, Dr. Todd Buckingham will be on, and Andy will tell you more about him in a moment. But the context here, just so you understand, it was a couple of weeks ago when we published a conversation about getting the most from your workouts. Go check that out if you haven't listened to it. And in it, we mentioned a response. Todd had commented on uh, some things about aerobic conditioning, and he offered some really great insight into how your aerobic progress builds over time, your fitness building over time. Well, after that comment, we thought, 
we really should talk more about this with Todd. And so we did exactly that. And there's really a lot here to unpack. And this is going to be one of those conversations where we try to get into as much. We're deconstructing the concept of building fitness, specifically aerobically. Although we don't, we talk more, uh, we talk a little bit about a few things, but um, how do you build fitness aerobically? And then what physiologically is happening inside your body? And then what kinds of decisions can we make to maximize that better? This yes. is the kind of conversation that you will first listen to several times because you're <laughs> going to want to make sure you don't miss some of the nuance there. But also you're going to really glean some incredible insights into what it is that we're doing when we're training and how we can make sure we're doing it best. Mm, I love that. Well, we're thrilled to have Todd Buckingham on. He is an endurance specialist, you could say, like the science of it. He knows it. He breathes it. He teaches it. And he works with this science. And then, of course, like we mentioned earlier, he also is an endurance athlete himself. We couldn't have asked for a better person to dive into the science of building fitness. Not only does Todd have that PhD to back him up in his knowledge of the topic, but he also applies his knowledge as a top-level do athlete. Todd was the 2019 and 2020 duathlon national champion. While teaching all levels of exercise physiology, as well as presenting for Team USA triathlon, he's way overqualified for this discussion. But we're so grateful that he has decided to come on the A to Z running podcast and share with all of us this amazing knowledge that he has. If you want to learn more about Todd, we will be linking to him and you can go to his website at toddbunkingham.com. Let's talk to Todd. Welcome, Dr. Todd, to the A to Z Running Podcast. We are so excited to talk to you today. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. And it was a good thing we got all of our jokes out of the way ahead of time so that Zach won't embarrass Andy too many times trying to poke fun at Todd and or Andy while we're doing this. Or yourself because you're not a cyclist I don't make fun of myself. I'm too serious for that. Okay. All right. Well, so Todd, thank you so much because um, not only are you giving of your time here and willing to share some expertise with our audience, but this is also like the stuff that you do for your job. And so we're just kind of making your work day longer here in the conversation. But that adds credence to what you're about to share as we go through this, because not only do you have a range of different reasons why you have expertise here, uh, but also you practice it yourself in your own athletics. And that's going to play a factor in some of our questions as well. So Todd, you have so much to share and we would just want to make sure you know on air here that our audience loves the science. And that is a large part of why we are so excited to talk to you here. So I'm going to ask the first question. And it is, in my opinion, perhaps the most interesting way to start the conversation, which is uh, we talk so much as as runners and as athletes, we talk so much about um, fitness. And we say things like getting fitter. And then the savvy ones among us even know words like aerobic condition or development or some of the various other qualifiers and may even say things like adaptations. But for most of us, that's about where our true understanding ends. And we don't actually know what is adapting or changing inside our bodies to mean that we're getting fitter or that we're gaining aerobic or otherwise kinds of progress. So can you start there for us? What are adaptations? What is actually changing in the body? 
Yeah, well, um, yeah, that's about my understanding too. You, you, you said it all. That's it. That's that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, I think they would fire me if that was the case. Um, so yeah, adaptations. It's a it's a, a physiological thing that happens inside your body. So you know, when we talk about getting more fit or aerobic fitness, we're specifically talking about your VO two max and VO two max stands for the volume of oxygen because oxygen is O2, um, the maximum volume, volume of oxygen that your body can take in, transport to the muscle and utilize to produce energy aerobically or with oxygen. So when we talk about fitness and adaptations, it's talking about the physiological changes that the body is going through in order to improve that VO2 max or that fitness or your aerobic fitness. There are so many different words for, you know, aerobic fitness, cardiovascular fitness, VO2 max. So, you know, you might hear all of those words used and just know that they mean pretty much the same thing. So when we're talking adaptations, we're talking what is happening in the body to make those improvements. Mm-hmm. All right. So it's going to be on the test. Now, can you tell us what each and every one of those, or maybe at least give us a few. What what are the specifics of things that change in the body that amount to higher VO2 max, better aerobic condition, all of that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, and kind of taking a step back, as endurance athletes, we always we hear that word VO2 max, you know, and I, I kind of just explained what it is and and why this is important for endurance athletes is because oxygen is our primary driver of energy production in the body. Um, but it's it's not alone going to help make you a better athlete um, or runner, I guess, because athlete is a very broad term. And not all athletes should have a high VO2 max, you know, take a sport like football, for example, you wouldn't want a football player with a high VO2 max because their their plays and their sport is so different than an endurance athlete. So if they have a high VO2 max, that means that on the opposite end of the spectrum, their anaerobic capacity is going to be reduced. And that is their primary driver of athletic success. So um, I will try to do a better job of explaining, uh, not just say athlete, but endurance athlete. So when we're looking at VO2 max, um, there are a lot of things that can affect it. Um, Genetics is a big thing. So if you want to have a good VO2 max, you have to pick the right parents because (laughs) heredity and and genetics accounts for about 50% of your VO2 max. So if you pick the wrong parents, eh, sorry, you know, Um, and I think both of you have chosen wisely. You did, you did well in that. Um, so that is congratulations to you guys. You hit the genetic lottery there. Um, another thing with VO2 max is that we can train it. You can train it to get better. Um, but there are some people who respond better to the training than others. You could have two people do exactly the same training and one person improves their VO2 max by up to 50%, and the other person only improves it by 10 or even less. So there's a lot of inter-individual variability that goes along with that as well. So um, there are a lot of little nuances that 
go into determining your VO2 max, improving your VO2 max, and uh, and we'll get into a couple of the uh, specifics a little bit later, but I, I kind of, again, want to take a step back. So VO2 max, very important. If, if you don't have a high VO2 max, you're not going to be an elite or a very good endurance athlete because it is the main driver for our athletic performance. However, when you get to the level like both of you are at, there are other things that become important in your um, in your athletic and endurance performance success. And those things are the lactate threshold and your economy. So your lactate threshold is when you start using more carbohydrates. So the exercise intensity increases to a point where you're using carbohydrates to produce the majority of your energy and the byproduct of those carbohydrates is lactate. Now on my soapbox for one second, lactate itself is not a bad thing. Lactate can actually be used as a fuel source for the muscles. And a lot of people think that lactate causes the burning sensation in the muscles, but that's not true. The lactate is actually associated with a hydrogen ion. And if we remember back to chemistry class, having more hydrogen ions in a solution makes the solution more acidic. And that's what causes the burning sensation in the muscles. So when, when that exercise intensity increases to a point where we can't use the lactate as an energy source, then it starts to build up in our bloodstream. And that's when we get the burning sensation in the muscles. So um, lactate is another important factor along with that VO2 max and exercise economy or efficiency, like how, how efficient are you in your stride? And that's a really big one, especially for ultra endurance or, you know, endurance events like the marathon or the half marathon, because you are using so much energy to put forth that effort. So the more efficient you can be, the less calories or energy that you can use to run 26.2 miles, the better you're going to perform compared to uh, a competitor, because you don't have to use as much oxygen to create that energy and and run 26.2 miles. Yeah, that's a lot. So that, that was a lot. And <laughs> yeah, and so so I actually um, I did a, a presentation for USA Triathlon a few years ago about these three things. I call them the big three of endurance performance because any one of them on their own is it, it's important, but they all work together to help you be a, a very good or the best endurance athlete that you can be. You know, when you're looking at Olympians, they pretty much all have VO2 maxes for males above 70 to 80, for females anywhere from 65 to 70. And so everybody's going to have a really high VO2 max. The thing that separates them at that elite level is what's your lactate threshold like? What's your exercise efficiency like? Now for, you know, the average individual, the average runner, if you have somebody who has a VO2 max of 50 and somebody who has a VO2 max of 35, well, yeah, I'm going to take the person who has a VO2 max of 50 because they are going to be able to use more oxygen and run faster than this person with a VO2 max of 35. So it's important on its own, but once you get to a certain level, then it becomes a little less important. So in this sense, then I think the kind of the most practical 
reaction for any runner out there listening is there are certain things that I can do to best influence some of a few of all of these, the big three here. Um, so thinking, thinking through, you know, the, what's the lowest hanging fruit. I want to kind of start there the easiest ways to positively impact these factors that will contribute then to our, our best performance. What are some of those lower hanging options available to us? Yes, that is a great question. So I know we always like to start with what's easiest, you know, what, what do I have to do the, the bare minimum to see the best improvement? And the thing for runners is just to run more. Uh, studies have shown that the more that you run, the better your efficiency is. So the, the smoother your stride is going to be, um, the less energy that you're going to use. And, you know, if you're only running 15 miles a week, you're not really going to see much benefit from that versus if you're running 40 miles a week. So just getting out the door and running and, you know, we kind of talked about it a little bit before we came on the air, but consistency is key. And if you can string together several days, weeks, months, years of consistent running, that is going to lead to a big change. These adaptations don't occur overnight. And I know in today's culture where, you know, we want everything right now. And unfortunately, us as runners, that's not the case. I mean, I'm sure, you know, you guys have been running for how, how long have you guys been running for? 20 years 20 plus years since yep. I was eight and I'm right? 32. So wow. So here you just spilled the beans. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're old. I'm kidding. I'm 32 as well. So I'm right there with you. Um, I did, actually didn't start running or endurance sports until about 10 years ago, though. So, um, you know, for me, I, I've seen vast improvement in the last 10 years, whereas in the last 10 years, you know, you guys probably haven't seen as much improvement as I have, because you're already you're starting your baseline is much higher than mine. Um, but that being said, you know, it didn't it didn't take you guys two years to get to the point where you are elite endurance athletes. Right. It's taken 20 years to get to that point. So these these adaptations don't just occur overnight or even over the course of weeks to months to years. Now, some of them do. Some of them occur can occur pretty quickly, but most of them take several years to occur. Mm. So you you can guess my next question, um, which is why 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 are some things some adaptations some changes happening more readily more easily, um, and maybe it's not necessarily certain ones at different times as much as it is a certain amount of change happens and then it takes longer to achieve the rest of or more of that change. What, what's going on in the body as to why that time matters and changes how much progress we can make? Yeah, so. A couple things. One is like what what change is occurring. So we talked about lactate threshold a little bit before. So, you know, how much uh, lactate can the body use to create energy? Well, that is going to change a lot more quickly than something like um, improving your VO2 max, because with the VO2 max, the changes that occur are we, we are increasing the number and size of the mitochondria. If we remember back to like, I don't know, fifth grade biology, the powerhouse of the cell, right? Mitochondria is where we use the oxygen to provide us the energy. So like these things don't just pop up overnight or over the course of weeks to months. Um, they can take 
years to proliferate and get bigger in size and increase in number. Um, and the same thing goes for the capillary density. So that's another thing that highly influences um, your VO2 max is, is how many capillaries you have. And, and capillaries are the really, really small blood vessels where gas exchange occurs. So only one red blood cell can fit through the capillary at a time. And the more capillaries that you have, the more red blood cells can get to the muscle. And then we can do that gas exchange of oxygen going into the muscle cell and carbon dioxide coming out. So these things take a lot longer to adapt than something like the lactate threshold where um, it's, it's the body learning how to consume that lactate or ship it to. So what happens with lactate is it gets produced in the muscle shipped through the bloodstream to the liver. It gets turned back into a carbohydrate glucose, then gets sent back to the muscle and gets to be reused as energy. So it's a lot easier to teach the body how to do that more efficiently than it is to teach the body how to make more mitochondria or make more capillaries. So that's why things like VO2 max, it takes like years, two, three, four, five years to continue to improve that. I, so I recently did a VO2 max test uh, probably a couple months ago. And comparing that to my first VO2 max test, I think it increased by about a little, maybe a little less than 20. So for people who aren't familiar, um, VO2 max scores, the highest score ever is a 97 and a half. And that was by a, an 18 year old Norwegian cyclist named Oscar Svedson. Um, runners like Steve Prefontaine, um, Bill Rogers, cyclists like Lance Armstrong, they're all up in the in the 70s and 80s and just really high values. Um, so, you know, when when I'm talking about these numbers, that's just to kind of give you a, an idea. But for me, it took it's taken 10 years for me to improve my my VO2 max to the point where it is today, because I used to be I was a collegiate baseball player. So I was on the complete other end of the spectrum where like I talked about earlier with the football players, you know, baseball is very similar with that explosive power component, like no aerobic endurance is necessary to run 90 feet to first base. Um, but to, to transition from that type of athlete to an endurance athlete takes a long time because of those changes with VO2 max that, that need to occur. Mm. I'm curious, Todd, if you can confirm or refute for me a um, this is this is a kind of a debate that happens a bit in the running world. There's a few schools of thought that have come from some famous names like Hanson's or Lydiard or some of those people. Um, and one of the conversations is about specifically mitochondria for a moment. Um, and the reflection is that uh, to influence the mitochondria reproduction or production, proliferation is the word you use, to influence that positively, most effectively, you do so with things like long, sustained, hard running, um, which both has the highest impact on it, as well as um, puts you in greater debt initially. And so like it's a longer recovery period before you're able to go hard again, things like that. But I'm just curious, because I've never actually heard 
specific tell, is that truly the best way to influence mitochondria proliferation? Does longer, slower running, like what, how do these things influence that? That is a really good question. So with mitochondria, there are two things that, that we look at when we're looking at the mitochondria is increasing the number or the proliferation of the mitochondria and increasing the size. All right. So if, if we increase the size of the mitochondria, we can get more oxygen in. If we increase the number of mitochondria, we can get more oxygen to different mitochondria. So doing each of those things, increasing the number and increasing the size, there are two different ways to, to go about doing that. To increase the number of mitochondria, we wanna do the low intensity endurance training. So like a long, slow distance run. To increase the size of the mitochondria, we wanna do that high intensity VO2 max type efforts of, you know, three to five minutes of, you know, 90 to 95% um, effort and a lot of rest in between. So, you know, kind of a combination of, of what you of what you mentioned. Um, but yeah, because we are looking at two different things, we're looking at increasing the size and increasing the number, we, we have to train two different ways in order to see uh, both of those adaptations. And that's why we have those kind of runs in our arsenal, right? We, we have the long, slow distance runs. We have the track workouts where, you know, we're running 800s or miles at 90% of our, our max effort. So, hmm. yes. Well, I appreciate you entertaining my whimsy for a moment. Of course. Um, and these are the, these are the fascinating things, right? Where we, you know, this is what I was saying earlier. Do we understand what's happening in the body when we're doing things in certain ways? And, um, there was an interesting reflection from someone without the science attached that said, you know, you do the, the intensity type of work and you can make, as you were saying, you can make initial gains rapidly, um, but you hit a ceiling and it's, it's basically a ceiling that you can never truly overcome by intensity alone and applying then what you just shared with us, it makes total sense physiologically why that ceiling really is a real thing. It's not just, you know, like a barrier of I can't work hard enough or, you know, I'm not uh, pushing myself enough, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and this is the trick. This is it's, it's the art of applying the science, right, which is how we make good. You know, I uh, use the phrase training wisely as we're talking with athletes um, training wisely involves knowing enough at least about the science and and about our bodies to know why the things that we're trying to do in training can have the desired effects 100 percent. yeah you hit the, the the nail on the head right there this is kind of a question that's also a little bit uh controversial and it's Love if it. a watch can actually tell you your vo2 max <laughs> Because we've had a lot, we've re been reading a lot, and Zach and I are kind of on the end of like, you know, I that can't really truly tell you what it is because it's not you're not hooked up it's to not machines measuring oxygen right. saturation in your blood, right? But we'd Correct. love to hear we'd love to hear you speak on this subject. Yeah, I love this question. Um, I think I think I wrote a blog post about it at one point, but um, you know, Zach, you just mentioned it's not measuring oxygen saturation in your blood and that's a completely different thing than measuring your VO2 max. So when you're looking at oxygen saturation, um, it's, it's basically, well, how saturated your blood is with oxygen, right? It's not necessarily how much oxygen you are breathing in and using at the muscles. So when, when we hook you up 
in, so I, I worked for Mary three bed sports rehabilitation in the performance lab. And I, I do VO two max testing almost every day. And we hook you up with a, a face mask that allows us to capture all the air that you're breathing in and the air that you're breathing out. And the way that we can tell how much oxygen you're actually using in that air that you're breathing in is by measuring how much oxygen you're breathing out. Because when you breathe the oxygen in, it goes into the lungs, diffuses into the blood, travels to your leg muscles, either gets used or doesn't. If it doesn't get used, it just gets sent back to the lungs and you breathe it out. So we measure how much oxygen you breathe in and then breathe out and then take that ratio and we can determine how much oxygen you are actually using. So to that effect, the watch does not do that, right? Um, the watch essentially is making a correlation because we know that as exercise intensity increases, so does your heart rate and so does your VO2. So your, your VO2 or the amount of oxygen that you're using is directly correlated to your heart rate. So the higher the oxygen demand, the higher your heart rate is going to be. So what the watch does is it determines, okay, you know, this is a heart rate of X and therefore the VO2 max corresponding to that is Y. Um, it's not actually measuring anything to do with oxygen. Now, that being said, it can be somewhat accurate. It really depends on the watch. I actually, um, a, a friend of mine works at Eastern Michigan and several years ago, they did a study on this where they measured oxygen consumption from athletes running on the treadmill. And then they also had them wear a watch. And depending on the watch, whether it was a Garmin or a Polar or you know the 935 versus a 245, it varied. That being said, it was, you know, depending on how accurate you want to get it, it was within four to five uh, units. The, the units for VO2 max are milliliters of oxygen per minute per kilogram of body weight. So, you know, it was within four to five for these uh, average runners. That being said, I know mine reads about 10 low. Um, and I think at, at the higher ends of the spectrum, you're going to see less accurate um, data because individuals who have higher VO2 maxes are going to be more efficient at using that oxygen. And the, the watch, I think, is just, you know, it's just direct linear relationship. So this should be your VO2 max at this intensity, whereas, you know, what we know, what we've talked about so far, we know that the the runners who are more elite tend to be more efficient. And so the watch can't really pick that up. So I think at, at those higher levels, you're going to see less accurate data. But I have measured people in the lab who, you know, a VO2 max of 52. Oh, my watch said I was 51 is, you know, pretty much spot on. So um, the the long answer that I just gave, the short is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> and it can and be accurate where, it can be not accurate right um so that so that's where that uh, you know the reaction that i have with these kinds of things in general um i feel this way about heart rate monitors a lot of the time too where it's like it it, it most likely is pretty close to accurate a lot of the time <clears throat> but the fact that it isn't all the time with every person 
makes me want to just throw it out the door. <laughs> Get rid of the technology. It's not reliable enough, which obviously that's an extreme reaction. And, and Zach I tend has a love-hate extremes. relationship with data. That's yeah, mostly I, hate I with uh, technology. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And that's so we think about, you know, the tools at our disposal. And what it really the question that we always need to be asking and answering with this kind of thing is, so how does that help me be a better endurance athlete, you know, train better, perform better, um, and all of that kind of stuff. And I, I, I've always appreciated, um, that, you know, when we keep the data in the right frame of mind, then it can be a valuable asset, or at the very least, it can be an interesting thing, you know, like VO2 max for, for an example, if I can track that over the course of 10 years, then it proves to be an interesting thing. Um, but as you say, um, in most instances, it's either going to be you know, we're, we're doing the right work to improve and we're going to notice that in other ways more readily than we will from a VO2 max measurement. You know, I'm going to notice that in my overall fitness gains and my performance gains and such. Um, but I also need to, you know, understand that if I'm measuring at 50 and I'm seeing, you know, they just said that this Olympic marathon are measured at 75 and I'm thinking to myself, I got to get to 75. But that's that's the wrong frame of mind then because first, I don't know if that's even possible. Um, you mentioned the genetics and I always appreciate the reflection there. Um, some of us have some genetics and some of us don't have some genetics that are going to lend toward that. Um, but also, it's not, it's not the kind of thing that, you know, it, I, I need to think about as an athlete trying to train my best. I need to think about what I do day to day that has the positive impact that I want and not necessarily use measures that I can't fully control and I can't truly influence um, aside from if I'm doing the good stuff anyway, if that makes sense. Yeah, and and to that point, when we do VO2 max testing in the lab, um, it I don't just want it to be a one-off thing, like, oh, here's your number and this is what it is. Like you said, tracking it over the course of time, over 10 years, is uh is important not even just like year to year but throughout the season really to make sure that what you're doing is have the having the desired effects and if it's not then what's going on with your training that we can change that but like you said you're going to notice some of these things pretty readily in your own training rather than coming in for a vo2 max test you know you could see a lower heart rate at a given pace so if you're running eight minute pace and your heart rate to start out your season is 150 in three or four months, you might be running that same eight minute pace and your heart rate is now at 140. So you know that your heart is getting more efficient at pumping blood to your muscles to give you that oxygen that it needs. So yeah, some of these things are, are readily available to you um, and, and having that data is important. So don't just throw away the heart rate monitor. It's not the worst thing ever. You know, for me, what I recommend is I, I always wear a heart rate monitor, but I don't always pay attention to it during the workout. I, I more go by feel and then analyze it after the workout. Uh, now, the one time I will look at it is uh, during a workout is for my easy workouts. So I want to make sure that I'm going easy enough on my easy days so that I can go really hard on my hard days and not have to worry about what my heart rate's doing on those hard days. But if I go too hard on the easy days, I'm not going to be able to go hard enough on those hard days. And that's one of the biggest things that that I see in the lab doing these VO2 max tests when we when we measure heart rate and we measure VO2 and I set training zones for people and they're like, oh, like I've been training, you know, a minute per mile or more faster than my zone one or zone two. 
And, and that's the biggest thing that I see is that people train too hard on their easy days and there's not enough disparity between easy and hard. You know, you actually, you have to go really, really easy on your easy days. I'm talking like 90 seconds to two minutes per mile slower than like half marathon race pace. And for some people that might feel like a walk. Um, and sometimes it is, but it's really important to, to take those easy days easy, like I said, so that you can go hard on those hard days. Because if you're always working out in that in-between gray zone, you're not going easy enough to get the benefits of easy running, but you're not going hard enough to get the benefits from hard running. And like we talked about that, you know, the mitochondrial uh, proliferation and increased size, the capillaries, you, you can't increase capillary density by running super hard. You have to take it really easy to get those capillaries to increase. So, um, and another thing is like muscle fiber type. Like if you're going, if you're running too fast, you're training the wrong muscle fiber types. And, you know, if you guys know about muscle fiber types, we've got essentially three muscle fiber types. You've got the type one, the slow twitch, type two A is the intermediate fibers and the type two X, which are the fast twitch fibers. And as endurance athletes, we want these type one, the slow twitch fibers, because they have more mitochondria and they're more efficient and they're better for endurance um, performance. Whereas the type two X are going to be your short sprints and, and we, we don't want those. Those are not efficient for us. They don't have a lot of mitochondria. They use a lot of energy. Um, and so if we're training too hard, we're training the wrong muscle fiber types. So a lot of things that people don't really think about when they're just out going out for a run and might be running a little bit too hard. So just things that you have to keep in mind when you're going out for that easy run, like, oh, I have to go easy because all of these things that can happen if I go too hard. Mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate that reflection immensely in large part because you know who you are listening to this right now. We may have been talking recently with some of you listening about this exact thing. Um, in concept, we, we, we all have experienced or know someone who has experienced this very thing where, you know, it's so the one athlete in particular who comes to mind, we were working with him and just struggling to see some, some traction, you know, like he, he was needing to take extra time off because he was getting especially uh, sore or fatigued at times. And uh, so we looked at the easy stuff and we said, you know, um, what? first of all, we said, okay, are you measuring heart rate? What's your heart rate at for this easy stuff? And it's like, yeah, it seems higher than it should be for easy runs. So I just gave him a number. This was just, a, just purely to try to push to the as easy as possible for a, a time, gave him a number that was very low for heart rate and said, what would it be like to run all your easy runs for the next two weeks at that heart rate? Um, and he reports back to me like two or three days in and he's like, I, I feel like I can barely run and my heart rate's getting up to that. I'm like, great, then barely run. Like that's, we're just testing it. You know, this isn't the way you're gonna train for the rest of your life, but, um, and sure enough, after about two weeks, he started to notice that he was running a little bit quicker now. He's more of a comfortable kind of rhythm, but still within that heart rate that we had we had kind of targeted, um, and just really needed to. He just needed to step back a little bit and ease more into it. And over time, he kind of got more comfortable and was able to kind of work the training back in as as hoped. Um, and we, I think we've all kind of been there at some point or another where it's like, I've got these goals and I've got, you know, I need, to, I need to be fit and I need to be fast and I don't have time to be slow. Um, and yet if I can't be slow when I need to be, I'll never be fast when I want to be. Right. 
Yeah, and so, that's one of my favorite sayings is you have to run slow to run fast, and it's totally counterintuitive. Um, now, that being said, you also have to run fast in order to run fast. But, um, yeah, you do. You have to run slow. I mean, my my easy runs, I do, gosh, at least two minutes per mile slower than my half marathon race pace. Um, and, yeah, just enjoy it. Like, just chill. You know, we, we do enough hard running as it is. I like to enjoy the easy runs, you know, stop and smell the flowers. Like Ferris Bueller said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. And uh, that's I, tr- I try to enjoy my easy runs and, um, you know, just kind of zone out with those. So, mm-hmm. you know, you don't always have to be pushing, pushing, pushing. And I'm sure, you know, it feels validating for you guys to hear it coming from me when yes. when you're telling your athletes the same thing so you're like ah see i told you <laughs> we don't have to say that because you just did so we'll go with it perfect <laughs> i do want to bring the conversation back to the adaptations um and what we can do because i i don't know all the science behind all of this are there things that we should be doing to help with creating the adaptation so like we do the work then are there things surrounding the work that help us actually, you know, make these changes? Yes. Fantastic question. I love that because doing the work is the easy part, right? We can all go out and crush miles, but it's actually the rest and recovery in between those training sessions that are going to lead to the adaptation. So we, we don't actually get the adaptations during the run. Right. So if you go out and run 20 miles, you're you're breaking down your body, essentially. And the workout breaks the body down. The rest and recovery builds it back up. It's a lot easier to think of it in terms of like weightlifting. So if you, you're doing biceps curls and you're you're really stressing the muscle and what happens is the muscle fiber gets little micro tears. And so to handle that same stress next time, what the body does is it builds that bicep muscle up more so that it doesn't have the same damage when you do the same thing the next time. It's the same thing with endurance training. We just don't see it like that, right? It's not as easily seen, um, but the same things happen. So when we go out and run 20 miles, we're breaking the body down and resting and recovering in between that run and our next run, that's what's going to help us repair. And that's why sleep is so important. Sleep is like the number one performance enhancer that athletes have that's legal. Even with illegal stuff, it's still probably the most important thing that you can do to improve your performance. And athletes are are a little different than the normal population. So typically people need, you know, we recommend seven hours or more of sleep every night. But because as athletes, we're putting our bodies through more stress, we actually need more sleep. So I actually, the last two nights, I've I've only gotten seven hours of sleep each night. And I, I can definitely tell, like, it's it's something that I'm, I'm used to getting eight to nine hours of sleep every night, because I'm training 15 to 20 hours a week. So as athletes, it's important to get more sleep, eight to nine hours um, to help the body recover and repair because it's during sleep that all of these different hormones get released that help the body repair and recover and get ready for the next time um, or the next hard workout. Another thing is that these easy runs and and the recovery runs, um, 
we do these to help speed up that recovery process. We don't do the easy runs to help gain fitness. And I think that's where a lot of people go wrong with their easy run. And they're like, oh, I'm just going to push through. Like, I'm going to run it a little bit faster because, you know, then I'm going to, I'm going to get more fit, right? I'm going to gain fitness. But the purpose of the easy run is to help recover from the last hard run and to get you ready for the next hard run. So those easy runs shouldn't be seen as something to push. The slower you can go, the better, because the slower you're going, the less muscle damage that you're doing, the less stress that you're putting on your system. And it's really to help improve blood flow, right? If you're, if you're going for an easy run, you're improving blood flow to the legs. That blood flow is going to take all of these different uh, hormones and um, repair molecules to help build that muscle back up and have these adaptations that we've talked about that can then make you a better runner. So by by running those easy runs, recovery runs too hard, you're actually inhibiting those adaptations that we really want to get. So yeah, you know, you can do all the training you want, but if you're not also doing the recovery and taking the rest that you need, you're not going to get those adaptations. Mm-hmm. So wise. <laughs> so wise in the ways of science. Um, I, you know, so here's the, here's the thing, Todd. We're just out of time, and this is the most unfortunate part about it because I think I would like to just continue talking with you for the next 10 episodes straight. Um, Deal. But <laughs> Oh, he's, he's agreed. You all heard it. We're putting this on air. Oh, shoot. What um, did I do? <laughs> so, you know, we, we want to always kind of wrap things up like this with um, is, is there one thing and maybe you've already given us the one thing. So maybe it's just remind us of what you said already in the conversation, but the one thing that we should all be at least aware of or thinking about when we consider how our training is achieving its purpose. So I'll give you two things. Um, one is going to be that consistency. Consistency is key. And I didn't touch on this before, but if you as a runner take one to two weeks off, you can see a decrease in your VO2 max by up to 10%. And that's with, you know, seven to 12 days off, not that much. Um, And it takes about four weeks to get back to the the point that you were before. So being consistent doesn't doesn't mean having to run every day, but being consistent with your training, what, what your coach is having you do, um, not taking, you know, tons of time off. If you miss a run, that's okay. But being consistent and and doing the training that you need to do. And then also number two, that recovery. You have to get sleep. You have to recover. If you're only getting four or five hours of sleep every night, that is not going to cut it. And I know a lot of people listening probably are only getting four, five, six hours of sleep. And that's going to be your biggest challenge. Like, yep, you can you can put in that 20 mile or you can get up at 4 a.m. and and run your miles, but but I challenge you to get at least seven to eight hours of sleep every night, and you will see improvements in your performance that you won't even believe. Not even just in running, but at work, in your life, you're gonna feel more alert. And it's, like I said, sleep is the number one performance enhancer that, that you can do. So, so those are my two things that I would leave you guys with, consistency and rest and recovery, recovery particularly sleep. And with that, you have now changed the lives of everyone listening. 
and enlightened us to such a great degree. So we appreciate, Todd, that uh, you're, you've been willing to share from this expertise um, and, and knowing and trusting, you know, as, as someone like you is talking about these things, um, you're, you're walking this walk with the rest of us, you know, as, as we're pursuing goals. You, in fact, are pursuing very high goals quite successfully. Mm-hmm. And so we appreciate uh, the model that you present on how when we take these things seriously, it matters. It makes a difference in our, uh, in our athletic goals. So thank you so much for sharing from your time, from your expertise, your wisdom, and your experiences. And we will look forward to the next 10 episodes with you on. Awesome. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. The promise did not disappoint. That was an information-packed conversation, if ever there was one. So in order to help just kind of synthesize this a bit and draw out some of the key details, consider these three things as mentioned. First, what adaptations indicate improving fitness? So that's where Todd was talking about things like your stroke volume within your heart itself, um, often noticed with decreasing resting heart rate. So that's one of those indicators that stroke volume is improving or can be an indicator that stroke volume is improving. So that's a good thing. You know, if you wear the heart rate monitor while you're sleeping, anything like that. But also there's functions like increasing capillary proliferation. So the little vessels in your muscles, you're not going to know that by any kind of like clearly observable thing, except for that the muscle fatigue types of things. So you like, you feel stronger, longer, those kinds of things are evidence of, um, as well as I, I enjoyed that conversation about the mitochondria proliferation and or size of mitochondria. And that's where the, the energy system function is happening at its core. And so as a result, this conversation, every time we are talking about things like energy systems and such, the work of the mitochondria is the kind of the fulcrum of the energy system work. And I appreciate it as Todd was breaking that down a bit for us. So then he also mentioned when these adaptations are occurring. And that's a comment that we've made on the show in the past. And one that we've heard some others make that it's just, it just really strikes close to home, which is that your fitness is improving during the recovery period. The adaptations are happening during the recovery period. And that is physiologically 100% true. Uh-huh. So we've been talking about that and then we have the science to back yes. it up. <laughs> Which just tells all of us practically speaking that we really need to be thoughtful about when and how long and in what ways we are recovering between the more significant efforts. And that's not to suggest like every run has to have a two day recovery. You know, there's, there's a lot of nuance there, but that's the nuance that we need to solve in order to maximize our training. Mm -hmm. And then the final point was how to most easily and effectively achieve the adaptations noted here. And so obviously there's a lot of different kinds of things involved in that conversation. I appreciated Todd started it by saying, get sleep. (laughs) We need He's that talking sleep. straight to us because we actually kept him up past his bedtime. So sorry, Todd. Happened to be the case. <laughs> and for things like stroke volume and capillary, all of that stuff, the mitochondria, all of those things, that's the training elements. And so what are we doing in training that best maximize that? And for the proliferation side of the energy system, um, just expanding our energy system there, especially with the mitochondria, that's a lot about the volume and load over time. And Todd really uh, gave us some clarity on that. Uh, The overtime thing is so important. And what we find is that the intensity itself 
has the ability to increase the size of mitochondria, which obviously improves their ability to perform. Uh, but also then we need the proliferation in order for that size increase really to truly have vast benefits. So it's suggesting that the aerobic load over time is kind of the anchor. And then the intensity that you build on top of that may just be able to add to the good work that you're doing once established. Well, if you loved this episode with Todd, please let him know. And then also let us know if you want to go down the science path again and again, because there's so much more to learn. In fact, we talked to Todd afterwards and we're like, there's so much more we could have unpacked. So if you love this kind of conversation, please, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it.